Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Suzanne Carriman of Reverence Farms in North Carolina. Along with her veterinarian husband, Dr. Hubert, they run a 400-acre, 80-cow grass-fed dairy. Their farm is a thriving polyculture where animals are passionately pastured and the land benefits from careful healing stewardship. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So share a little bit about how you got started in farming. Well, it was not my intention to farm. Uh, I was like many people these days, I was sort of leaving something rather than running to something. Mm. Um, I left the city and I knew that I wanted a life of more space and I wanted to get closer to my food. I never intended on producing it. I actually mm. just wanted it to be not so difficult to procure it. And I didn't think that that should be an expensive thing. I sort of had this innate understanding, which became a core principle as a farmer, that real food belongs to all people and that it's not something that should be fetishized or something that should be special or like sort of set apart that this and that is like local and organic. I just wanted it to be all food and I wanted it to be real. And I had some really strict ideas about what that was. And so it started off with me very poorly trying to grow vegetables and vegetables sort of bored me. Um, and I really, really wanted livestock. And my husband at the time um, was like, I don't know, that seems like a lot. And we were talking about getting a couple of guineas. And it was like, I don't know, you know, and now, of course, we have like 80 pet Jersey dairy cows. And I use that term very carefully. Like, it's like I had 80 family milk cows. Um, and so then it just really, my moment of becoming a farmer came when I realized that this milk cow that I had purchased could actually change my world, not just in what she was feeding me with my A2A2 grass-fed milk. I was feeding her flaxseed oil at the time and other plant-based um, energy additives. But she, I realized that I could change my world by the way I grazed her. And that is really my, my stepping off point from becoming a homesteader to becoming a farmer. Because when I realized that if I moved her around this plot of land with her heifer, and it was like 9.6 acres, it was probably three acres were open land. I had a couple goats and I had a couple sheep, but recognizing that every year the water could be cleaner, the air could be better, and that we could take more carbon from the atmosphere and put it in the ground. That's what changed me. That's what it was like, well, this isn't just an idea just for me. This isn't about just feeding myself better. This is actually about something bigger than me. And it was the first time I really recognized what I kind of call pasture alchemy, this idea that we could actually continue to take from a system by harvesting the animals for milk, fiber, meat, leather, other thing. And yet the system had more in it next year than it had last year. That was a mind-blowing concept for a suburbanite who grew up believing that humans were a scourge on the earth and that all we did was make ugly plastic, you know, islands in the ocean and that the best we could hope to do is minimize our footprint. Here was this notion that we could actually make it better. And so that was a very addictive concept to me and one that still gets me out of bed every day. Mm -hmm. So you came to farming, like I think a lot of people do, they're just almost perturbed about humans on earth, but then you realized there was a way to fix it. Yes. And I think one of the things that was most profound to me in this process, and one of the things that I like to talk the most about is we can't do this outside of community with each other. Many mm -hmm. of us come back to the land because we're burned out on people. We're burned out in the city. We think that there's a better way and we're going to you know, do it ourselves, and we don't need anybody. And what we find when we get out here is we are very dependent beings. And we are very dependent on community. And you don't know that really until you're alone with a problem with an animal that's hurting or you're stuck in a well and you have no water or you're whatever it is that you have some intractable, intractable problem and you're outside in the country alone at night. 
all of a sudden you realize you really are a dependent creature. And so the most profound life change for me in going from being an urbanite, I mean, I used to have a congressional press pass. I was a reporter on Capitol Hill. I hung out in the speaker's lobby. I drove a fancy car around town and lived in the city. To go from that to mm. this, the most profound change inside of me in that process has been recognizing that we really can't do this outside of community with each other. And what I am most surprised by in the process is how my closest friends have actually become conventional farmers. And a lot of people in our movement are kind of like, well, I can never talk to somebody who uses Roundup or sprays 2,4-D or uses hormones on their cattle or whatever. But when you go out in, in, in a rural community, you're alone in that respect too. You're also alone in your ideals, usually. And so either you make friends, in my opinion, or you or you don't swim. And I found that we had much more in common than I thought. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I think so often... Uh when people come to organics and they look at conventional farming as the big evil. And yeah. unfortunately, well, unfortunately it's not, I mean, obviously the principles are there that they're using and a lot of things they're doing are detrimental to the earth, but many of these farmers do have the best of everything in mind. Um, they're trying to do the best they can and they just don't have the knowledge or they've been told by so many people to do it a certain way. Unfortunately, some of them aren't open to new things, but yeah. my thing is let's find out what areas we can connect and work with them on those. Absolutely. And many of them are stuck in a system that they didn't make and could do little to change. And and what I think what our haughty urbanite selves come to the table and think that like now that we have these new principles, that we somehow weren't complicit in the feudal system that created those farmers predicaments to begin with. And we absolutely were. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories is probably 10 years ago, I was traveling in Nebraska with a friend of mine, very close cattle friend of mine now. And we were driving to the sand hills from Lincoln and we were going to pass feedlots on the way, mm. like right on the interstate. And I'd never been exposed to that before. And he's like, Suzanne, don't look, just look forward. Let's look at the dash, change the radio. Just don't look. And I said, no, Doug is his name. I said, no, Doug, I'm going to look because something that I did today is complicit in those animals suffering. Something that I participated in Unless we're Amish, and even the Amish purchase many things outside of their own. Correct. Community. Yes. And let, we're all participating in that in that industrialism to one degree or another. And like when we choose to get off that bus and where we choose to exit doesn't matter. We all were on the bus. And and so for me, this is just a big process of unwinding. And in the unwinding, I found the most radical thing I can do is love the person next to me. And mm -hmm. that has been to me, the biggest joy of this process. Mm. So let's let's talk about that process from that first milk cow to where you are today. Kind of what was the, how many years um, did it take for you to actually say, we're going to make this commercial? Um, I think those decisions happen like sort of one cow at a time. But I okay. think the, the tipping point really was when um, my now husband, Hugh and I bought um 21 cows on a tractor trailer um, from a friend of mine, Ron, in, in Maryland. And we kind of developed a little business plan. We had we got a buyer, a local cheese producer, to buy our milk. I was milk, we were probably milking about 16 cows before then. And I say milking, we milked them and drank their milk and sold some raw milk, but we weren't milking them to try to get all the milk we could out of them. Like we gave most of their milk to their calves. And mm. so we milked them for their own health and to have enough excess for us. But we weren't really set up. We didn't have a parlor. We were just milking in a in head gates in a barn with a portable milk machine in a bucket. And so that decision to buy those 21 cows and to have a milk contract is really the was the tipping point. But it, before that, it just happened one cow at a time, right? So like there's one cow in our heifer and then there's another cow and then there's a yes. couple other cows. And And I really advocate for people to do this who want to get going in dairy is to start their dairy herd almost like a beef cow calf herd, but with a lot more care. So you can't just because you're not milking the cows, just treat them like a beef cow. They're still a dairy cow. They still need energy and protein far in excess in what you're likely to have in your grass at that time. But that allows you to build up your genetics. It allows you to raise some of your own heifers. And so that's what I did. A lot of those 16 animals I had raised um, from 
from their moms. And so I bought cows, I bred them, I bred up, as I say, to folks. And sometimes some of them were two generations in at that point. So they were closer to genetically to the cows that I wanted. They'd been raised by their own mothers. So they were more sound in terms of nutritional health from when they were young. And, and then I was working on both my pastures and my skills as a grazier to get to the point that I could be better at it. But I don't think that the learning curve in dairy really can be shortened much, much shorter than five or 10 years. So it's a nice way to start. And then I, I sold the, the boys either as, as rose veal or as, as grew them up and made them beef um, as mature animals, some of them as steers. Although I don't, I don't think dairy works particularly well as steers on mm. grass only. Do you feel, this is a question I get asked, do you feel that dairy breeds have better flavored beef than the beef breeds? I do think that they do have better flavored beef, but not everybody likes it. It's uh, interesting. Flavored. Okay. It is yeah. more flavored. And if you have a palate that is ready for that, um, it can be really great because keep in mind that, um, so for example, the Jersey breed, which is what we use, um, they have some of the finest muscle fibers of any beef in the world. The only beef that has a finer muscle fiber than Jersey is the Red Devon, from my understanding. Um, okay. So it's a very tender beef if it has adequate interstitial fat. But of course, an animal only puts on interstitial fat. That's the fat, of course, in between the muscle fibers. They only do that after they're phenotypically mature. And that takes for a dairy animal many years. Like Jersey steers are excellent beef if you have excellent forage and you're willing to wait three years i don't i've never had a jersey steer be finished at two years they're finished at three and i've even taken some of them to four and their beef is amazing is that economically viable as a beef operation no especially if you're feeding hay but if it's an adjunct to a dairy operation or you accept that you're not going to make a killing on your beef and you're just using that as a way to kind of support your dairy dreams um i think jersey beef makes a lot of sense Jerseys do really well with crosses. Some of the best beef I've ever had was, in fact, the best beef I may have ever produced on the farm was a South Pole Jersey cross. Um, and that that is really exquisitely good beef. So the yield's not as good. Um, so just to kind of give you an average, and we have smaller frame jerseys than commercially, commercial jerseys would be, but I mean, it's not uncommon for our, our fat heifers that we weren't, weren't breeding or our steers, they might have a hanging weight of somewhere 600 pounds. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, like a, a half of our beef finished weight is somewhere on the order of 150 pounds. Correct. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. not a huge amount. Yeah. It's not going to make economical. Right. But if, again, if it's an adjunct to a dairy operation or you recognize you're using that as a way of growing the dairy, um, and the same rules apply with dairy and beef in this regard. And I'm sure you guys talk about this on your podcast a fair amount, which is that you can have more smaller animals on an acreage than you can larger animals. Correct. So um, we've definitely sized the Jersey down quite a bit. They're yeah. not minis, but they're, they're some of our most productive cows probably only weigh a thousand to 1100 pounds live weight. And isn't a smaller animal typically a little bit better feed conversion? Totally. Okay. I mean, the, the only thing that you struggle with, and there's, I, I've gone through this in my mind, I've never actually put it on a spreadsheet, but there has to be a tipping point though, in milk between like milking cows and milking goats, right? Like, correct. Yes. Yes. The amount of time to milk a cow and to take care of a cow and her calf, regardless of her size. So you can talk about feed conversion. Sure. But at some point, like if you want to milk goats, you should just get goats. So there has to be enough size to make that transaction in the parlor make sense time-wise. And I haven't totally settled on that even in myself. So we have cows that are probably 1,350 pounds. I mean, bigger 1,400 pounds, even um, they're big girls and they milk. Um, mm. And I'm not sure that they're necessarily less efficient than our cows that are a thousand pounds, to be really honest. Like the only way you could do that is like some version of like a clap trap, like you would do with a lane hen and you'd have to like monitor her feed intake over a period of time. And then you'd have to monitor her milk output. 
as well as for us, monitor the size of her calf that she's growing and monitor that cow's calf's feed input. And, you know, that, that would, that would be an awesome research project for a PhD. And I would, I would throw in my cap to that arena because I would love to know the answer, but yeah, at the moment I'm sort of, I have cows in either end of that spectrum. Like we have cows that are probably barely a thousand pounds as mature animals. And we wow. probably have some that are 1350 or more. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk grass fed, because I know that's something that you like to uh, let people know, have a little discussion about, about, you know, kind of like is grass fed all it's cracked up to be? And do people need to be diving into that head first? I would say, yes, grass fed is all it's cracked up to be, but like to start to do that on year one, two or three is cruel and unusual, both to you and the animal in dairy. Unless you are just blessed with exquisite pastures, you have been in the beef world a really long time and you totally get pasture movement and you're rotating those animals two and three times a day and they're onto nice pastures without fescue. And on top of all that, you have the genetics to do it. Not even just the genetics, but also you've raised animals on their own mother's milk so that they're robust in their endocrine systems and they're, they're, all their systems are working well. If you get all of that right, which by the way, I'm now in year 15 and I can like pat myself on the back every once in a while. And I'm like, dang, I really am getting it right. Mm. But I'm on year 15. To do yes. that on year one and two is just cruel for everybody. Um, are the benefits worth it? Yes. If all those things that I just told you are true. I mean, there is no no question that the compositional ch- difference in the milk is is absolutely there at. At my core, I don't think you can actually produce medicinal milk with grain. However, however, most people who are grain free with these cows are not producing medicinal milk. In fact, their cows are sick all the time. And that is not medicine either. These cows have a high somatic cell count. They tell me that their milk tastes salty. I've been there. I've done that. And cows Mm. that didn't have a a problem in their udders when put on these kind of systems all of a sudden do. They might have been in a commercial dairy with without any mastitis history and a perfect low somatic cell count of 73,000. And they bring them out into this, quote, grass fed system. I call it grass starving. And all of a sudden the cows have, you know, staph aureus in one quarter. They have some weird bacteria in another quarter. Their milk is salty. Their coats are rough. They're covered in flies. And I'm like, that's not that's not medicine either. So I would much rather see those cows eat some grain and they would actually metabolize the grass better because as you know, you need starch Mm. to be able to digest protein. And especially if you're a ruminant and if you're not getting enough starch from the forage, then you have to get it from somewhere. So you can use beet pulp. Back in the day, I used to use beet pulp, alfalfa pellets and flaxseed oil as my energy um, program. But I mean, this was 15 years ago. And back then to buy a barrel drum of flaxseed oil was a thousand dollars. I have no idea what it would cost now, but I I imagine it's really pricey. And I stored it in my friend's walk-in 20 miles away. I mean, I was committed to grass fed. I mean, I was going up there with a five gallon bucket and a pump and I would bring five gallons at a time and store it in my fridge at my house. And I would pour it on beet pulp every day. And my cows looked good and they were breeding. um, But that's how committed I was to grass fed um, had I done to do it all over again, would I probably just feed them some grain? Probably. And, um, just because it would have been so much less expensive. And I don't think at that point I was getting a whole huge difference out of feeding like that, but mm-hmm. I was committed, you know, and when you're committed to something, you're, you're committed. Correct. Yeah. You're going to, it's a little bit of dogma in that I'm, there's yeah. no grain going to happen here. So let's break that down a little bit for folks, because let's say they do have a dairy count. It comes from a commercial herd. Uh, you're 15 years in. Now, is it genetics or is it time or is it a mixture of both? Kind of like what's the best path forward for a lot of these, these folks? I think the most difficult thing is you have to work on all the things at the same time and you don't have mm-hmm. the ability to be on more than on just one learning curve at a time. So last night, I took a little video of this and I've been meaning to post about it, but I haven't yet. But I, I took it to re- even remind myself because I had about 80 animal units on a half of an acre. They weren't back fence. They had a- access to probably five or six acres, but okay, they were, they were concentrated themselves on the half of acre because I had just given them that break of grass. It was 
totally washed out, blown out crabgrass. But it was almost a pure, what, what wasn't weeds, and there was a very significant percentage of that stand that was wing stem and horse nettle and other non-edibles. Um, what wasn't weeds was pretty much a pure stand of crabgrass, totally blown out, seed heads past the seed. I mean, these are hard seeds on all this stuff. And I had 80 animal units, so probably close to 100 animals because um, mm -hmm. there were some yearling heifers out there. And um, on that half of an acre overnight, and they came in this morning full and made milk. And why did that work? So this is my answer to your question. Well, the answer was genetically, there are many of these cows are 25 plus years into a grass only program because I have 15 years with them. And many of them were purchased from the only time I've ever purchased cows is from people who've been in grass fed programs. Um, and then I've bred with that with other friends and I'm, I'm definitely a Jersey uh, genetic enthusiast beyond measure. I mean, I have literally four large semen tanks in my medicine room and it's full of semen going way back. Mm -hmm. um, and I've collected, I've driven all over the country to get it. I've gotten it from all over the world. So genetics are a really big part of it. Um, but there's other parts of it too. The, the fact that those animals had hay in the morning was important. They ate a bale of baleage that morning. It was probably this time of year, it was either wheatlitch or crabgrass and, um, they, so they had their belly full of other things. And so that was a part of it. A part of it is we spread mulch on that pasture a bunch of times, a part of that. So that there was minerals from the, from the composted mulch. We've spread salt on that pasture a few times. We've spread um, lime on like just little bits of lime. I mean, we don't have the money for a lot of lime, but like high calcium lime, pelleted lime to spread the crabgrass seed. So that was on that pasture. That pasture has been rotationally grazed now, sometimes in an intense way for call it five years. So all that plays in to the fact that those 80 animal units could be on a half an acre of blown out fest, uh, crabgrass overnight and milk well in the morning. Um, they've had, you know, better eating recently um, than that. So all of that played in. They were all raised on their own mothers or at least a mother. And, mm. and I think and, and the younger animals on there are still or recently weaned, but they got their own mother's milk for seven, eight, nine months. So all of that contributes to a scenario where the scenario I just described could work. But you remove any one of those elements. The genetics are out. Big problem. If you have pastures that haven't been worked on and not just worked on with rotational grazing, but this is something we should probably also talk about as well, is that I don't think stock, small stockholders can get where they need to go just by good managed grazing. If you are white oak pastures and you have a herd of two, 3,000 brood cows, can you make an impact on some land? Yes, you can. Are you gonna do that with two cows rotating in your backyard and in your lifetime? No, you're not. And I'm not saying the, the principles don't scale well, down well, of course they do. The same basic principles scale down, but you're just never gonna have that level of animal impact. So the addition of the organic matter on those pastures was really, really important. Like all the managed grazing in the world is not with, even with 80 cows is not going to have the impact that's going to move the needle in five years, like you would if you had several thousand head. So all of those things have to be a part of it. And I don't think any one of them can be removed. Mm. So Corinna, these tips we've been giving people all about, you know, transformation, problems, but we've also keep talking to this about this thing called social proof. What is that? And why do people need to worry about that? Or they need to think about that as they're doing their marketing? Yeah, well, social proof is one of the primary reasons that people decide to buy. And in many cases, it's the obstacle that keeps a person from taking the next step and purchasing your product. Social proof is when someone needs to see that it actually works for other people. There's proof that it works for customers. And when you can give social proof and you can point to results, you can point to specific people who've used your product and had great success and have had the transformation that your client is seeking, then it removes the risk for them. They're more likely to try it when they see all these other people saying it works. Gotcha. And with that, what are the easiest ways to capture that? 
Well, one of the ways that I like to get social proof is I like to ask people to leave me Google reviews. And when they do, then I can take those and repurpose them on other platforms. Another option is to capture user-generated content. So on social media, for instance, you might have customers that are taking pictures of your product being used in their home. And you can get permission to take those images and then share them with other people and say, here's something that Melissa made with her zucchini, right? Or here's something that um, this customer tried with our fire cider. And now all of a sudden you've got an excuse to tell a story about a, another customer using it. And it, it points to the fact that A, people love it and it's also successful. And you're not the one bragging about it. It's almost like the customer is bragging on behalf of you, right? So it just yeah. feels, a, it feels a lot easier to do that. It's not you talking about yourself and how great you are. It's someone saying, hey, oh my gosh, I tried this product and it worked for me. And we all look at those reviews on products that we buy. And so that's why it works so well. Yeah, so powerful. I mean, you see it so much like an Amazon when you go and buy. I make my decisions based on how many stars there are and how many people left the review. It's just sort of something we naturally do. And so we want to tap into that with our products as well. Mm, absolutely. If you want more farm marketing tips like this, check out my top rated weekly show, the My Digital Farmer podcast. I teach marketing concepts and interview lots of farmers to find out what's working and not working in farm marketing to help you find more customers, increase your sales, and build a strong brand for your farm. Look for the My Digital Farmer podcast on your favorite podcast app. So then your herd right now, um, the milk that from your herd, where is the, all that going? It goes to Chapel Hill Creamery, and um, okay. we're in the process of acquiring Chapel Hill Creamery, so soon it will be a closed loop. Um, so they came to us a couple of years ago and asked to buy our milk. We were selling raw milk at the time. Um, it is legal in North Carolina to sell raw milk as pet milk, and we had a, a totally legal label. The state was aware that we did it. We had to fill out these ridiculous forms that for pet food and they came to inspect us. And like, we actually had to do like the ash content and like the whole business. Um, but we became the largest raw milk dairy in the state. I mean, nobody told us that, but I was pretty sure we were. And I was pretty sure that I did not want to have that target on my back. Um, and our insurance company said, no, we're not doing this anymore. Um, so all of those things together was made sense to sell our milk to, to the creamery. I mean, just to give you an idea on like per gallon difference in price, we were selling our gallon, our raw milk for $16 a gallon, and we're always selling out. Um, we started selling milk to Chapel Hill Creamery at $4 a gallon. Um, so did it make financial sense and that on a per gallon basis? No, it didn't. Um, but it provided a way that we could sell all the milk without having to get a bottling plant, which we were... At that time, we were spending probably two or three hours a day bottling um, when we were before we started selling to Chapel Hill Creamery. And we just weren't set up to do it well. We did it very clean, but and I was very proud of our operation. I was very proud of the milk that we sold, but I just didn't want to go further with that at that. Um, and I've always wanted to value add our own milk. So we uh, we've been selling to Chapel Hill Creamery for almost, well, I guess a year and a half. Um, and then they decided that they wanted to retire. So we are in the process of acquiring the operation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what's the full range of products that they have? Um, they have, it's all cheese. So it's all like, okay. um, there's like a brie like cheese and a, um, a harder cheese. That's not quite Parmesan. It's more like Asiago. Um, then there's a, um, the cheese is pretty close to Gouda and they sell a lot of mozzarella in the summer. Um, and so we will be able to keep that product line and expand it over time. Gotcha. And so then how far away is that? So I'm assuming a milk truck comes every couple of days and just loads up. The milk truck is us. Okay. So we have our own little tiny tanker and um, this is our second tiny tanker. We actually graduated out of our first one meaning we couldn't fit in enough milk in it anymore. So we now have a bigger one and we're actually about to graduate out of that, or we're going to have to start delivering milk more often. So right now we deliver milk every three days, but we'll probably have to go to every two. The tank holds um, 
I think 200 and some gallons. Okay. So we don't make a ton of milk with all of those cows because we milk share. Um, and we still have a lot of non-contributing milkers in that herd. We definitely have cows that we put the milkers on every day and they only give us four or five pounds of milk. And they walk out of that parlor with a full bag and they go give it to their calf. And we know because we watch it and we know also because he was a vet and we give him oxytocin and a cow that gave five pounds, like all of a sudden contributed 22 mm. when we made her with oxytocin. Um, so we've been developing ways to use calves, um, their own calves as kind of the oxytocin, oxytocin release uh, tools. And, but the logistics of that working with, we're milk 65 cows this morning to get their calves to them. We only do it with the baby calves because they're easier to handle, but it makes a difference in a lot of cows. Now, some cows will just come in and let down their milk and let us have all of it. Mm -hmm. But if we tomorrow cut all the kill milk out of all the cows we could, we would have to deliver milk every day almost because we would make that much more milk. So one of my research projects, that's just my own private for fun project is I'm breeding cows to be able to release milk in a calf sharing system that they're willing to give milk to us in the parlor while still being good mothers. Um, so I would say about a third of the herd is really good at that right now. A third of them are marginal and a third of them are terrible. And you might say, well, then why don't you just call all the terrible ones? Well, some of them are exiting the herd for that reason. Yeah. But what I found is some of them actually, when bred to the right bull, produce rock star cows. So we have some cows in our herd, probably 10 of them who are there just because I figured out how to breed them right to, to create the cow I want. So I'm a, as much of a breeder as I am a dairy farmer. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of effort and time spent into that aspect of things too. Just trying to figure out, as you said, you have so much semen there because you're just always trying these different variations. And um, I guess that's what keeps you up at night. It was definitely what wakes me up in the morning. I often <laughs> literally wake up thinking about breeding cows Yeah, and I'll just be like, yes, that's what I want to do. But it's so much time that it takes from the time you make a breeding decision mm -hmm. in a cow until the time you get to see the result. Like it's the opposite of fruit flies. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, it's, it's five years really before I know, or it, yeah, well, it's, 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 it's two and a half years before that animal is born. I mean, as who's born is, is producing milk, then another nine months for gestation. So you're now, you're now at easily three <laughs> plus, and then you have to evaluate her over the course of that lactation. So you're at four years really before you know if that one decision you made is the right decision or not. Absolutely. So then what is the team like on the farm? How many people are on there on a daily basis? People always ask that question. And I always have to count on my fingers, which is so silly, but I, I really do. Um, the team is kind of bifurcated into what I would describe as like the field team and the animal team. And we're still very much building the farm. Um, so the field team is building fences and applying a lot of organic matter to pastures. We've been able to get a ton of um, compost donated from a company that just needs to unload it. They have a big lot and they often have more than they need. It's not done composting, mm -hmm. but it's still organic matter. Um, and so we have a group of people, there's probably three or four of them who do nothing but fix machines, run tractors, build fence, put in waters. And for example, one of the things that we found is that it really doesn't work for a dairy with like ours that has as much as we have going on to have portable waters. We really need fixed waters. And that is a downside, of course, because then you have saturation manure areas so we try our best to put wood chips in those areas where there's high impact. And then once a year, go scrape them up and haul that manure to the other end of the pasture to deal with that. But we just can't be moving waters every day and dealing with all of that. So we're trying to go to having more jug waters, which we really like. Um, but we have a, probably a half of the home farm right now is not fenced with anything other than polywire. So just in then sorting off 40 calves from their moms every afternoon in a single strand of polywire fence that may or may not be hot because it's so far from the box. Um, that is a challenge. Mm. So we're working on fencing. Um, then we have on the other side, the animal husbandry team, which is 
been more sparse lately because we kind of put everybody out in the field to make the fields better. And so we, we kind of were just holding it together in the milk room. Um, but we have one regular milker and then Hugh relief milks. And we have recently just been only working with um, her daughters and my daughter as our, as our kind of like milk assistant team. And, um, and like one other person sometimes to like scrape the lane. Well, there's kind of somebody from the field team is like scrapes the lane and beds the pack, as we say. So we, we milk out of a composted bedded pack barn that's got about 80 um, head gates. Okay. And so there's a concrete lane that's about 12 feet wide that's um, got grooves in it so the cows don't slip. And we put wood chips on there every afternoon. So the following morning when the cows urinate and poop in the lane, at least it has something carbonous to absorb mm-hmm. some of it. And then we have a straw pack. We have what's called a static pack in the dairy world. Um, we used to have a, a active bedded pack with sawdust that we would rototill or um, uh, kind of disturb every day with um, a cultivator. But we found that the calves do very, very poorly on sawdust. Interesting. Cows can do okay on sawdust, but calves do very, very badly. We had lots of pneumonia. We had lots of navel ill. We had lots of ear infections, not like in their ear, but from their ear tag. It's just the, the, the sawdust is the calves are so much closer to the sawdust than the cows are by just being smaller animals that that little particulate matter was like getting in crevices in them and giving them little infections. Okay. And so we had to give up our, our comp our like actively stirred pack for um, a straw pack. And that straw pack has worked very, very well for us. So we clean it out every 30 days and the bottom of it is wood chips. And when we can afford the trucking and we can get it, I really like to buy, um, uh, what I can't gypsum Mm -hmm. and put it down. I would love to buy lime too, but just having that in the static pack is really awesome. Um, and then we just roll out straw and we roll out straw every day. So at least one bale of straw goes in there every day when it's wet or the winter, it can be two or three. Okay. Very cool. Um, and so then, um, obviously you don't have necessarily a marketing side because it's all going to the creamery right now, but as you're starting to take that on, are you going to have to start building that more out? Or do you think that the, um, sales pipeline is pretty well established? For the milk, the sales line is very well established. Um, and the creamery is underserving currently the current demand. Like we have more orders mm-hmm. at the creamery than we have cheese to fill it because we haven't had enough milk to fill that pipeline. So that part is good. Um, we've, we used to have a farm to table cafe and all of our meat went there and we've not made the pivot perfectly to retail only. Like we closed that right at the beginning of COVID, not because of COVID, but it just happened to be right at the beginning of COVID. And that ate literally that cafe ate all of our meat on the farm. And so once we went from wholesaling exclusively to ourselves or near exclusively to a back to hundred percent retail, we weren't, we, we didn't pivot that. It's really hard to make that pivot well and quickly. We didn't make it perfectly. And so now we're opening an on-farm retail store. And I think that will more than take care of that, but people want to shop when they buy retail products. Um, so the meat is a very important part of our business um, because we, keep all the calves on all the cows and we don't sell anything to the commodity market. We don't sell any of the calves into um, the conventional chain in that way. We have a lot of animals that need to be finished Mm. and then sold as meat. And so that is a very, very significant part of our dairy income is, is beef. Gotcha. Okay. Um, So share a little bit about the um, kind of what the, what does the year look like on the farm? Well, um, I'll just start where we are right now. We're in the fall and what we're working on right now is trying to get ready for winter. So we're thinking about building a shed for some calves to try to make ourselves easier. Like every farm, dairy farm since the beginning of time, we really need more barn space. Um, we're building fences. We're, we're really actively spreading uh, compost and partially composted um, wood mulch on pastures. And we're doing a lot of um, disking and a little bit of tillage on the edges of the pastures to get rid of the fescue that's in the fence lines. 
um, and we're drilling things like wheat and oats and triticale and clover and um, vetch. We plant a lot of vetch. And so that stuff, if we get it in the ground soon enough, which we're kind of in a sprint right now to do that, if we get it in the ground soon enough, we can actually get enough growth that we can graze it this year. If we don't get it in the ground until October, like late October, November, December even, we won't graze it until spring. But then either way, we'll probably graze. If we do it right, we'll be able to graze at least for an hour a day all winter, maybe with the exception of January, because our lanes are usually too wet to bring the cows out. We often have forage mm -hmm. to graze in January, but it's just getting them to it without totally wrecking the lanes. Because again, the big difference between beef and dairy from a grazing perspective is you have to go back to the barn. I mean, we even entertained a mobile Correct. milking system when we first started. And the radical part of me loves that idea. The practical part of me realized that it was impossible to do in a financially reasonable way because the state was going to make us have these pretty sophisticated wash down pads at every place. And it was going to be like building like six milk parlors and not just one portable one. The The economic effect was like building six. Um yeah. So uh, that's what we're working on right now. And then they'll, I would say by towards the end of the year, we'll start grazing less and we'll start feeding more hay. And then it's about feeding it on the spot that we want to change the ground the most and that we can get back to the barn to milk and that the animals have shelter. Um, and mm -hmm. we calf, I wouldn't say we calf all year, but we calf most of the year. So we're calving right now in the fall. We'll have about 25 calves this fall. We had about 42 calves this spring. I would say that next year, the spring crop will be about the same, but the fall crop will be heavier. We'll probably calf somewhere in the 40s, both spring and fall next year. Um, so spring is pretty heavy into calving and grazing as fast as we can. Like every grazer, you know, in the spring, we're trying to run fence as much as we can and get those animals moving as much as we can. Um, we plant summer annuals. So towards the end of spring, although this year we did not plant all of our fields because it was such a late spring. It was cool for so long and we no-till a lot. We don't no-till everything, but we no-till enough that you're competing yeah. against yourself if you if that crop isn't dying when you drill into it. And so we always hedge our bets. You know, with some fields we plant earlier than we should even though it's going to get outcompeted, we at least have something growing in the spaces that are de that are not as dense so that we have an early summer crop to graze. Um, we graze a lot of millet and sorghum sudan. This year, I became a little bit more enchanted with sorghum sudan than I have been in the past, just because of its ability to produce a tremendous amount of dry matter on what seems like nothing. Mm. I mean, it just like doesn't rain and it grows back. It's just amazing stuff. Um, the millet is more nutrient dense. I think cows milk better on it. I think it's a more balanced nutritional profile. It's less starchy, um, but sometimes you just need volume. You just need to fill bellies. Um, and the summer for us in North Carolina is a slog. It is hot. Um, dairy cows are very sensitive to the heat. They really can't deal with heat very well. So we work a lot on building shaded lanes. So we build lanes through the woods. Um, we're planting a lot of trees. We have planted probably 200 honey locust trees and plant tree shelters. And we're in the process of planting probably another two or 300 this fall. And, um, so we're hoping to have in five years, I really hope that all the cows on the farm can walk. The cows can walk to any spot on the farm entirely in the shade. And sometimes they're walking for more than a mile. So just to, mm. to have a mile of a shaded lane in any direction you want to go takes some thought process um, in terms of lanes and planting trees and and using trees that we have. So I think that's that's kind of the year. In the summer, we just try to get through and to keep the cows cool. Um, we're going to get fans this year, this coming year. So that'll be very helpful because it might make sense in the summer when it's really, really hot to actually leave the cows in the barn. We have a very open barn. It's hugely open and it's on a hill and that okay. with the fans, it might be more comfortable for the cows when it's 102 degrees to be standing under a fan with a mister in the lane than try to get them out grazing in the day and then they'll go graze at night. Whereas in the, you know, in the winter, we might do the opposite. We bring them up to the barn at night and even if it's inclement, we might put them in out during the day 
as long as the lanes aren't too muddy. We'll send them out to graze all day. But at night, they they like to come back. They're so cute. They like the whole expression that cows come mm -hmm. home, like in the winter, they like to go back to the barn at night. It's like they're going home to go to bed. But then we spend a ton of time bedding. You know, we might in A, I mean, Correct. we don't have machines to do these things like you would on a thousand cow dairy. I mean, we're literally ourselves manually unrolling four or five bales of hay on that hay pad. And could we feed hay in the field? Yes. And we have, and we do. Um, but you definitely get a lot more waste in the field. And yes, that's organic matter, but I'd rather use free organic matter and like spend the money that I spent on hay, like to actually put it in the cow's bellies. Um, and we have a limited amount of good hay that we can get. So it's not, we don't live in a dairy state anymore. North Carolina is not a dairy state. So there's not a lot of hay infrastructure around here. So it's not even just a matter of money. I mean, the money is, the hay is expensive, but it's also a matter of, um, there's just not that much dairy quality hay available. And so we used to truck it in from Pennsylvania and, and Maryland, and that just got way cost prohibitive. So it means that like every bit of dairy quality hay that we either grow or our neighbors or friends grow, we really need to feed. And that's more effective mm. on a concrete pad. And we feed lesser quality hay outside. But in general, I don't like feeding hay outside. I think it makes um, areas on the for the calves that they're more likely to get sick. I think there's just a lot of muck. There's like dirty udders. So we really, the cows are pretty pampered in the winter. They have a nice straw pack and they eat on the lane and um, they're pretty well taken care of. Gotcha. Very cool. And tell me about some of the other enterprises. I know you've got some other you know, pork, the lamb, the hens. Um, so we have about a hundred Delaware chickens, there's like 50 layer, fifty layers and 50 cockerels in there. Um, that's my little project because I'm becoming more and more disenchanted with um, commercial hatcheries and the kind of birds that they're producing. And I just, the last, the last sex links that we bought, I mean, part of my saying this, they're just dumb. Like they're really like mm. actually dumb. And they a lot of them just died for stupid reasons. And like, they're too expensive to buy and raise for that. Um, and then, um, so we have the sex links as well. So we probably have, I don't know, somewhere on the order of 200 birds right now, which is a lot less than we once had when we had the cafe. And when we were selling a lot of retail eggs at the cafe, we at one time had 800 layers. Um, pigs, at the moment we have two pigs. Again, that's a very different scale change. Um, we one time had groups of 50. Sometimes we ran more than one group at a time. We used to run about 150 pigs a year. Um, so we're working with a partner. Um, next year, he's going to be living on the farm and he'll run all the pigs and the chickens. And those, that'll be his own enterprise. Um, the only other animals that we have for production purposes are sheep. We have at the moment about 30 St. Croix and St. Croix cross ewes and all of their lambs. We had a 200% lambing rate this year. So at the moment we have about 90 total sheep and we don't, um, mm. this year I elected to not uh, castrate the ram lambs. So the rams and the ewes are now separate in two separate herds, which on a lot of farms would be probably not wise and create additional complications. For us, it kind of doesn't matter because we have a bull herd, we have a heifer and dry cow herd, on one farm and so those sheep can each be part of their own herd and then at the main farm we have the milk cows and their calves and they're close they're newly young heifer calves that were born like less than a year ago so we have plenty of places to put the sheep in terms of like having a group to put them with to not create another group if that makes sense Correct. the biggest problem yeah, as absolutely. you well know is in in livestock management is like the number of groups and with dairy, it's very difficult to not have a lot of groups. We have less groups than most dairies, and we raise more classes of animals than most dairies and still have less groups. But still, there's there's more groups than I would like. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say to a new farmer just getting started who's um, you know just getting into all of this? To watch how many learning curves you're on at the same time. And just because multi-speciation makes sense from an ecological point of view, and it does, doesn't mean it makes sense for a financial point of view or a lifestyle point of view 
for where you are right now. That learning one species or two for most people coming out of the gate is enough. And if you understand sheep, can you understand cows? Yes, they're not terribly dissimilar, but every group you add is gonna add complexity and complexity is always the enemy of efficiency um, and can often lead to overwhelm. And so what I see most often and I've definitely experienced myself more than anything is overwhelm. And so managing that is a really important thing. The other thing I would say is that um, it's taken me a long time to learn this lesson, but I've had the most success and the most joy from selling meat for my animals when I sold it before the animal was dead. And storing meat in a freezer, I always thought when I was young into this that it was easier to take care of animals in the freezer than in the, in the field. And actually that's not true. There's so many things that can go wrong in a freezer. So many things. Mm. And your product degrades really fast if those things go wrong. And so just making sure that your marketing is keeping up with your production I think is a really important thing. And and that this is true of any business, but it's definitely true in farming, that cash is king, meaning like not being cheap about things, but recognizing that things can make economic sense without making financial sense. That just because it pencils over the next five years and just because of your model to turn sunshine into butter works over a five or 10 year period does not mean that it's going to cash in a one to two to three to five year period. And you live or die in those one to two to three to five year periods. You don't, you don't live in 10 year cycles. You know, you don't feed your family in a 10 year cycle. You feed your family what you, what you have this month. And so making, I think there's been a lot of talk and good talk about how profitable regenerative farming can be in the long term because you're lowering input costs and all those things. But in the beginning, you're literally made of input costs. Everything is an input cost. You have mm -hmm. to buy everything. Yes. And you're also like dumb in the beginning and you're going to make really dumb mistakes that cost you a lot of money. And, and so never underestimating that aspect of things. So however long you think it's going to take you to achieve whatever goal you describe for yourself, it's probably multiply it by a factor of two to five and you'll be somewhere in the ballpark of what's realistic. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that was great. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for your time today for coming on and sharing. Uh, this has been a great interview. I'm so excited to share this with our folks, especially our dairy folks. I know they're going to find this fascinating and uh, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.